I've used this opening illustration story with you before, but on a very different subject, but I think it works. Okay, there's two fish. Uh, morning has broken beneath the deep blue sea, and uh, they have their you know, mid-morning greeting of one another, uh, coffee, chit-chat, enjoying each other's company, uh, talking about what's going to happen, the news, etc. And as they're standing there minding their own business, up swims another fish, much younger, a younger pup, um, sees the two who, he doesn't know them from a hole in the wall, uh, from a fish in the sea, um, but nevertheless is so exuberant about his day that as he swims by, he says, don't you love the water? It's feeling great. And he swims right on by, uh, leaves them in a wake, and they have to kind of stabilize themselves a little bit, uh, not knowing to know what to do with that man's, that little fish's uh, exuberance. Um, they stop for a minute. Um, they say nothing. Uh, they look out sort of vacantly, and then one says to the other, Water? What's water? It's a story like that where what is all around them, what they survive on and thrive on, it's the very medium in which they exist. They're totally unaware of it. They don't, what, what is he talking about? This is just us. This is just the way things are. There's nothing to note about it. And, and that's, that's the joke, right? That it's everywhere, but you can't see it. You're not aware of it. You're, you're totally insensible to it. We're going to talk about something today that the, in the time in which it was written, it was probably uh, far less familiar to them, but to us, it's kind of like water. It's everywhere, and, and in many respects, we're not even aware of it, and, and that is the degree to which we have access and resources and affluence to a degree that if not our parents, at least our grandparents will look at us and go, I cannot believe what you have available to you. We are not even aware of the degree to which our culture, our environment is both defined by and dependent on a world in which having and adding to what you have is essential. We're so unaware of it that everything just sort of seems this is just the way it is. I want to show you just a brief clip from a movie called Mad Money that kind of identifies that sense of which it's everywhere and yet we're not even really aware of it. Something about stuff. It's like on display. So even if you've got the same stuff, the way they lay it out makes you want. Wanting is the root of all uh, needing stuff. Tell you what, you say money can't buy happiness, but it sure as hell buys everything else. <laughs> Who's feeling nervous? <laughs> Wanting is the root of all needing stuff. We have been listening to Mark's gospel for many months now, and Jesus has spoken of many things. Today, you might loosely say that what Jesus is going to talk about is a theology of things. Because if our things don't have a theology, they become a drug which softens you and, and slurs your, the speech of your own mind against what is real, and you forget. And so, 
in the passage that we're looking at this morning that's probably even too familiar for our own good. We're going to listen to what Jesus says, but we're going to listen to it through the lens of the way in which three different constituencies respond to him. Each one of them has a response to what Jesus says that I think will contribute to our sense of a theology of things and and perhaps something even greater than that. But we need one. If we don't have one, then all of that is just a marvel. So we're in Mark chapter 10. We'll start in verse 17. And I wonder if you might focus your attention by standing for a reading from his word. Our central text for today is found in Mark 10, 17 to 30. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Just prior to this moment, Jesus has spoken about marriage. He's spoken about children He's spoken about the proper care of children, and now he's hitting the road. You know, can't stick around for long, got to move on, got places to go, people to see, people to talk to. And as he's on the road, before he can really get into stride, up comes this unnamed individual who just sort of falls at his feet. Right there, without warning, just falls at his feet and asks him the question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
not exactly a question you hear very much these days. You don't see people running to you, laying down at your feet saying, hey, how may I I last forever? It doesn't really happen. This guy just sort of cuts to the chase. In our day, it's not like that question doesn't exist. It exists in different forms. People will ask themselves, if not out loud, what what do I got to do to live a life without regret? What is that life that is life? Uh, The older you get, the more you ask the question that um, Private Ryan does at the end of Saving Private Ryan when they're there um, reviewing uh, the graves of those who had come to die for him. And he looks at his wife and he goes, did I lead a good life? Was I a good man? It's not the same question as what this man is asking Jesus, but it is in the same spirit, with the same urgency, with perhaps the same anxiety. And Jesus offers him this sort of funky response, right in response. Um, Why do you call me good? Uh, No one is good but God alone. Not the question. Why did he go there? Bookmark it. We'll come back to it. It matters. Jesus is not just being evasive. In fact, Jesus honors the man's question with something. The man has come to Jesus asking for a life hack. Tell me what i got to do to make sure that I'm going to be part of this kingdom that allegedly is going to last forever. And Jesus honors him with an answer. He gives him an eternal life hack. He says, here are the commandments. And he rattles several off. And at first, it's a little bit curious. He rattles off six or seven of them. But if you were watching closely, you notice that the commandments that he rattles off, they're all the commandments that have to do with interpersonal relationships. No no murder, no adultery, no theft, no no lying. And, you know, whereas the 10th commandment says something about do not covet, he says no defrauding. That's our first sign that Jesus is on to this guy. Coveting is you just want something so badly, you, you, you just desperately want it to defraud somebody is actually to take it, even if it's theirs. And then he says, and honor your father and your mother. And if you, again, if you're listening carefully, you realize that Jesus is dressed, rattled off about six or seven of the commandments, but he's left out commandments one through four. Hmm, the plot thickens. What's going on? But before Jesus has a chance to continue with his little line of questioning, it's as if the man is relieved because he says to Jesus, Oh, Jesus, I'm good. I've done those from a very early age. Those are my values, right? It's almost like he's checked the box and now he's, I can exhale now. Apparently I've done okay. And then Mark slows down the tape, and it's this wonderfully poignant moment. It says, Jesus looked at him. And the word there for look is is something very unique. It's Jesus looked intently at him. He stared at him. And Mark says that something that Jesus said of this man is is nothing that you, you find Mark recording of anybody else in the entire gospel. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, one thing you lack. Go, sell everything you got, give it to the poor, follow me. That's it. Do that. And how does the man respond? Here's the first lesson for us. It says the man went away disheartened and sorrowful. Why? Aha, now we know why Jesus left out the first four 
It says, the man had great possessions. What, what are the first four commandments about in the Decalogue? The first four of the Ten Commandments, they're all about God. And, and you might summarize the first four commandments under one of the commandments, which says, you shall have no other gods before me, which includes goods. What Jesus is telling this man in real time is, you shall have no other goods before me. And for that, that's a bridge too far for this man. Here is a man who is desperate to know what life lasts forever. He's desirous of it. But in what Jesus has said to him, I can't go there. And, and here's where I think we get the first lesson that we're supposed to learn from this passage. In, in the response of this, what we now find to be a rich man in the face of Jesus. This is what we learn. That what we have, our relationship to it, can actually weaken our interest in what is greater than it. Let me say it again. What we have, whether you call it wealth or not, can actually weaken your interest, your grasp in what is greater than it. This man knows what the value is of a life that does not last, that does not end. And yet in what he, the, the little calculation he does in real time is to say, mm, nope, what I've got, that's, that's actually more. I'm walking. You and I can be convinced that what we have is le- that, that, that what is less is actually more than what it really is. You and I can be convinced that what is really more is actually less than what it claims to be. Let me, let me give you a very silly illustration to make my point. All right. Um, I asked my wife if this was vain, and she said, go ahead and do it. Um, my one brush with celebrity in my entire life is that I grew up with Wes Anderson. Um, some of you are like, who? Uh, filmmaker. Um, Isle of Dogs. Royal Tenenbaums. That guy. You know, makes films like nobody else does. Very quirky. Very unique. Um, he's the one holding the bat. And uh, I'm the kid in the Superman shirt. Okay? So he and I grew up together. And the reason I have that up there is not for you to go, oh, wow. Um, but it's to tell you the story of the very first instance I ever met Wes Anderson around the corner from where I lived. Um, I was there. I met him. We were both comparing how much pocket change each of us had. Um, I had in my hand, um, let me make sure I get the story right, I had two nickels. In his hand, he had five pennies. So do the math, right? I had two nickels. He had five pennies. And in that moment, he began a ruse. He said, tell you what, I'll give you my five pennies, you give me your two nickels, you'll have more. See, five is more than two. (laughs) And in the moment, I said, I'm in. (laughs) I I gave him my two nickels, he gave me my five pennies, and I went away happy, and he went away. (laughs) So Wes Anderson owes me five cents. But in that moment, I was convinced that what I had which I thought was more, was actually less than what it was. Somebody had to persuade me that it was otherwise, and I had to opt for what was less, thinking it was more. Friends, that's the principle at work here. Now, that's silly. But Jesus is not being silly here. He's being severe. He's being as severe as Alexander Men was at the beginning of our service. What this ruler is, is, 
out to embody is what we heard Jesus say in that parable of the soils many weeks ago. The, the soil that is, that is rife with thorns and thistles, which, which chokes the life out of whatever might grow in it. And Jesus uses that image to, as a metaphor for the idea of the desires of this world and the cares of life, that if you let those things take root in, way, in, in you in a certain way, it will choke off everything that is meant to last forever. What you have can weaken your grasp of what is actually greater. And if here is a person who is already finely tuned and sensitive and sensible of what a world is that will last forever, if even he can say, yeah, I'm not sure that that's really as important anymore. If he can do that, why do we think we're any less susceptible to the same thinking? Here's the irony of it. When your heart can weaken your, when the things that you have can weaken your interest in what is greater, you know what happens when you go there? You actually expose your heart. You, you actually leave the door unlocked for things to waltz in that actually steal from you. Like what? Like anxiety. You can be so preoccupied with what you have or what you don't yet have, or whether you will keep what you do have, or whether it ever will grow. You have just let those things walk into your door and start taking from you. It's, it's stealing from you your peace. It's giving you your anxiety. Same time, it could be bringing in envy. You know, you see yourself, you go on Facebook, you see what they have, and you go, man, my life stinks. And they don't deserve that. They're, they're jerks. Whatever. Envy. The heart that is weakened by what, a grasp of what is greater is opening itself up to, to, to anxiety. It's opening itself up to envy. It's opening itself up to anger and, and competition with those who maybe have more or have less, whatever it might be. Look, somebody in your family dies. They have a will. You go through that thing called probate where the executor and whoever else has to kind of look, sift through the will and discern who gets what on the basis of the wishes of the one who has died. And, and sometimes wills are ambiguous, and, and sometimes wills are surprising in what, how they distribute what they are, have. But maybe you've been in a situation where that happens, it was either ambiguous or it was surprising, and decades of relationship blow away like ashes when people start fighting over the things. The heart, the water in which we swim makes us insensible to the way in which the things that we have can make our hearts be so weakened against what is greater than what we have. And I know that this sort of exists way out here in the ether, so let me bring it down to a very, a very tangible place at some level um, where Jesus does. What, what does Jesus tell this guy? Look, what he tells this guy, he tells to this guy. He, he doesn't say the exact same things to everybody. He, he didn't tell the disciples, hey, go give all your stuff to the poor. He just said, you know, follow me. So what he says to this guy, he says to this guy, and yet we're all susceptible to the same condition that he's in. And what does Jesus tell him explicitly? Hey, get on it, sell everything you've got, and give it not to the state, not to the temple, um, not to your friends. Give it to the poor. To the poor. The same poor that Jesus says you always have with you. The, the same poor that Jesus always has a concern for. 
It's a question that you and I all have to grapple with. If, if somebody were to say to you, as a church, as those who are followers of Jesus, that our concern should be for the poor, if your first thought is, the poor, you know what? They're poor because of the choices that they made, and choices have consequences. No doubt, in some circumstances, that is true. In other circumstances, people are poor because of certain circumstances they find themselves in, catastrophes they find themselves the victim of, or structures in which they cannot extricate themselves. That's also true. And sometimes it's a complex layer of both. And I, I say all that to say this. If you, one mark of whether or not you know that your heart has been so captivated by things that it has been weakened in its interest for something greater, if your first response is, the poor, they are not my problem, then I would say, imagine looking at Jesus intently in the same way that he looked intently at this man. Imagine looking at Jesus intently and saying, the poor are not my problem. Now, does that mean we have clear solutions about what to do? Of course not. Does that mean that we all should take the place of those organizations that automatically know all sorts of things that know that we would never do? Of course not. But for us to say, as followers of Jesus, the poor are not my problem, is to have discovered that your possessions have had possession of you. That's the first thing we learn. The second thing and the third thing are shorter, but they're no less compelling. Jesus has said what he said, and the disciples, they do not sit there nodding their head. Um, it's a, a very different response on their part. Jesus says, how difficult is it for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? And it says the disciples were amazed and then Jesus doesn't let off the gas. He says, look, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it says, they were exceedingly astonished. Why? Why would they be amazed at what Jesus has heard? Why would they be astonished? I mean, Mark records both reactions, so we should make note of that. Why are they astonished? Because Jesus, in real time, to borrow a word, is deconstructing their categories. They heard that the guy has followed all seven of those commandments since he was a kid. He's the Phi Beta Kappa of obedience. And Jesus says, it's not enough. What? He's obedient. He is pious. He has great concern for everybody he meets. He's acted according to what the law of Moses said. And Jesus says, I'm sorry. And then at the same time, they're saying, wait a minute. This guy's got bounty didn't, wasn't Solomon's blessedness from the Lord evidenced by the bounty that he received? Wasn't Job, wasn't he blessed with, with great resources that then tragedy befell him and he lost it? But by the end of that story, it was restored to him. Isn't bounty evidence of blessing? And Jesus is saying, don't confuse the two necessarily. They can be, just don't jump to conclusions. In real time, he is deconstructing their categories. 
And the reason that they're both amazed and astonished is because they're thinking, if this guy isn't qualified, who is? We're done. Why should we even try? But Jesus in that moment is trying to remind both, trying to remind them of everything. Of the one thing absolutely necessary. That all that you've done is not enough. That all that you might possess is no proof of his favor or of his blessing. And therefore, what we have in ourselves or by what we've done naturally is impossible to qualify us for his kingdom. But in that moment, he reassures them that what is impossible with humanity is very possible with the Lord. What we're meant to learn in their amazement and their astonishment is the only way anybody gets in is by the favor and the grace of the Lord and not to be confused by your virtue or your holdings as evidence of that favor necessarily. But, but why does Jesus seem to put those of a certain tax bracket, to speak anachronistically, why does he put them in a special category of concern? Because it's those who have much who think less of what they really need. Chris Arnade, I've mentioned him before, he was a bond trader for many years, did very well. In 2011, he left Wall Street, he becomes a photographer, he ends up writing a book called Dignity, where he goes and, and he just traveled around the country, hanging out with what he called was back row America. The people with no voice, with no means, who most of the time spent their days in McDonald's. And he took pictures of them to dignify them, and he asked them their stories, and he writes a whole book about it. And he's an atheist. But he ran into a whole lot of people that believed in Jesus. And he had to reckon with why is it that he had such a trouble with it, but they had no problem with belief. And at one point in that book, he says this. In these last three years, out from behind my computers, I've been reminded that life is not rational and that everyone makes mistakes. Or in biblical terms, we're all sinners. We are all sinners. On the streets, the addicts with their daily battles and proximity to death have come to understand that viscerally. Many successful people don't. Their sense of entitlement and emotional distance has numbed their understanding of our fallibility. And soon I saw my atheism for what it is, an intellectual belief most accessible to those who have done well. Being poor without means in no way guarantees that you will have faith. It just means that you will be far less likely to think that if you had enough, you'll be enough. If you don't think you're fallible, if you don't think you're sinful, if you're not aware of the ways in which what you have can actually deter you from pursuing what is eternal, then you're right. In your own power, by your own light, you will not seek him. You will not think you need him. But what is impossible with us is possible with God. One last thing that Jesus is out to tell us in response. And it all comes through what Jesus hears from um, the head of the class, Peter. The rich person has walked off into the sunset. 
the, the disciples are kind of still scratching their head going, uh, right, camels, got it. And then Peter says, see, we've left everything and followed you. He's wanting Jesus to take note of everything that they've left behind as a bunch of disciples. Um, you remember that, there's that line in, in, in that old film with Spencer Tracy and, and Catherine Hepburn called Adam's Rib. Um, he's doing his tie. They're getting ready to go out. And, and she keeps walking in the room, sort of sashaying, flowing my dress, showing her dress up, and he's not noticing. And she finally says, this is the dress I'm wearing. <laughs> right? I mean, around your household, maybe somebody says, these are the dishes I washed. These are the clothes I put away. These are the floors I mopped. Right? Did you notice? And in that moment, Peter's looking at Jesus saying, did you notice? Are you aware, Jesus, of what we've done? We're not like him. I'm not amazed. I've left it all behind. In that moment, Peter is almost congratulating himself for as much sacrifice that he's made. And in that moment, Jesus doesn't, like, dunk on him. Shame on you for being so self-congratulatory. He doesn't say that. In fact, in effect, what Jesus says to Peter is, you're not wrong, but you're only half right. Yeah, Peter, um, you and these have left everything that's familiar, and with it, most things that are stable, and with it, a lot of things that are predictable. You, you have entered into a condition in which you're having to be far more dependent than you ever dreamt of. So yes, you have, you have left much behind, but, but I might say two things to you, Peter. Let's be clear. What you've left is not a virtue in and of itself. Sacrifice is not actually the point. Sacrifice is a means to another end. Sacrifice is about freeing yourself up to make yourself available for the good of other people. Sacrifice is actually about freeing yourself from the anxiety of the things that you have that you're worried about losing. But secondly, the sacrifice, though it's not the point, you need to know this. It's not all about sacrifice. That what you leave, there is also gain in it. You've left everything that you know of that was familiar to you, but I will tell you, if you follow me, it will be returned to you in scads. Just by other means, through other places. If, if you... If you are a person that has gone to a foreign mission field and you have left everything behind, all the friendships that you know, to some extent, everything that was familiar to you, the homes, whatever it might be, you have left that behind, but when you go to a different place, you just find it in other settings. In this world, in our cultural moment, when you follow him, there will be loss, there will be sacrifice. There may be people that never talk to you again. There may be things that you can't do as a consequence of following him and making sacrifices, but I will tell you that it is not simply a game of subtraction with him. There is just something else by which to fill that gap in another way. Faithfulness entails sacrifice, but it also offers addition. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to Peter that's what Jesus is trying to get across to all of us. And if I had to summarize in one line what Jesus is trying to tell Peter, what Jesus is trying to tell the disciples, what Jesus is trying to tell that guy with means, it's this one idea, and I'm borrowing it from a poet, a local poet. 
you will always have what you gave to love. You will always have what you gave to love. What, what, what makes us apprehensive about giving in love? We're afraid of what we might lose. We're afraid of what we might not have on the other side of the fence, whatever it might be. What Jesus is out to tell all of us is you will always have what you gave to love. It may be given away, but in some sense it is not lost to you if it is given in love. Not to get something in return, not to merit something from the Lord or from them in order to get it, but given in love. You will always have what you gave to love. Why? Circle back to that little funny exchange at the beginning of the passage. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. What's Jesus getting at? Is he trying to deprecate himself? No. He's just trying to elevate his father, who is good. And the problem with the rich young ruler is that he thought he was pretty good too, himself. And you and I, we're not bad. We could be much worse, and we think we're good. And Jesus is out to say, you don't know good. There is one who is good, and he is the Father. And why is he good? Because he took an interest in you who would otherwise have no interest in him. Because he gave up what was the most precious thing to him to those who can be too impressed with things. He did for us to rescue us from an anxiety of wondering whether we're enough by doing for us what we could not do because in what his son did, it was enough. And that's why we call it the gospel. And that's why Paul puts it very succinctly when he starts petitioning the church to sacrifice for them's sake, sacrifice themselves for the sake of another church that was in deep need. He says in 2 Corinthians 8, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He despised himself, gave up what he properly owned and possessed that we might be rescued from the guilt of our sin, from the corruption of our heart, and from the preoccupation about trying to always build ourselves up thinking that that will be what saves us. This is the gospel. You will always have what you gave to love because the Lord is good and nothing is lost to him. Not even in your death. What do we do with all that? I could be cute and quote to you G.K. Chesterton. He said this. Um, there are two ways to have enough money. One is to acquire more and the other is to desire less. Uh, if you do the first, it won't be enough. And it's not really easy to go, I think I'll just desire less money today. Yeah. Or I could be far more practical and roll out what C.S. Lewis has said to us before. He said this, I, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusement, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as your own, we're probably giving away too little. If our giving does not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say it's probably too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot because our commitment to giving excludes them. Very practical. It's a kind of a benchmark. But instead, I'm going to land this plane 
with one more line from Alexander Men, who towards the end of that talk to a bunch of people who were mostly convinced that atheism was true but had this crack in their, in their wall to think maybe there was a God, he asked them to do something that I think is essential for us to do ourselves if we're to grasp the idea that you, only, you always have what you gave to love. Listen to him for 90 more seconds. Who is a person? Why do you exist on the earth? You need to think about this. Let's do a simple experiment. Let each of us, at least once in a week, at least for a few minutes, be one-on-one with your thoughts, with your life, with eternity. We all know well что тело человека здорово тогда, когда оно находится в нормальной, естественной гармонии с природой. Когда легкие дышат чистым воздухом, когда у нас есть нормальная пища, когда мы выспались, это связь наша с миром, с природой, с тем, что нас окружает. Если этого нет, наступает голод. Но почему мы не задумываемся над тем, как голодает наша душа? Чем мы ее питаем? А ведь она нуждается в пище не менее, чем тело. И для человека сегодня найти эту подлинную, высшую пищу, этот вечный хлеб, который будет питать наше сердце, задача there is no theology of things without a theology of eternity. The only way that there will no be a stranglehold of what we have upon us is to take him on as an experiment, to make it a discipline to quiet ourselves and to consider all things, especially the things that last, so that the things that don't, don't present themselves as if they were eternal. And that we need something greater than just a physical bread, but something that was of eternal nourishment. Well, congratulations. You've come to the right place. Here we are. What he's come to give us is not just a ritual, but somehow to free us to believe that you will always have what you gave to love. <clears throat> this is what we have from him the water in which we swim. He helps us to become aware of that water that we might walk in his way. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we, where do we go from here? We don't wish to dismiss this out of hand because he had very unique guidance for this individual. But we also want to understand what you have for us each individually because you know each one of us as an individual soul. Father, help us to see that what we have in you is greater than anything else that we might possess and that all that we have is in fact a gift and been entrusted to you for something not just necessarily for our own benefit or enjoyment, though surely that is true, but for something more as well. Thank you that you've given us yourself in this meal that we might in fact live for what is lasting 
In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.